Greetings, brethren. It certainly is good to be back in the United States, to be back in Charlotte, to see some familiar faces, and to see a couple special grandkids. Had a very profitable trip to uh, the UK and also to East Africa. About two weeks ago, I flew over on a Thursday night. The challenge of these trips is a number of the flights are overnight, so you get to sleep uh, sitting up or squeezed in a chair or something. It, uh, it's a challenge. <clears throat> I was able to spend the Sabbath with brethren in uh, London and then <clears throat> took another night flight down to Nairobi. I uh, got in on a Monday morning. We had a Bible study that afternoon, had to get a visa for Tanzania. Uh, we had about uh, 15 people, had a baptism there. Tuesday, we flew down to uh, Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. Uh, we had another Bible study down there, baptized seven people down there. Could have baptized some more, but uh, some couldn't get off work. Uh, flew back up uh, to Nairobi and then drove out to western Kenya. It's about uh, three, 400 kilometers over some of the... Uh, roads that have not been maintained for 15 or 20 years. It's very challenging. Uh, spent three nights out there, met with uh, two groups in the West. One was about 40 or 50 people, another was 50 people. We're probably going to have some more baptisms out there. There's just water is a problem in Western Kenya. Water that's clean enough to put people under. So we're going to actually build a baptismal tank out there so we can do some more baptisms. And driving back towards Nairobi, about halfway back, we met with another group that came across us on the Internet. This is the second time that I've met with them, about 30 people there, five elders in that group from other organizations. But we had a, <clears throat> went through a Bible study with them, and we had questions and answers. They were asking very intelligent questions, including, what about the thief on the cross? Didn't he go to heaven? So <laughs> it was a very profitable trip. Uh, the numbers in Kenya have stayed pretty much what they were. We probably lost maybe 20 people or so that have drifted off in other areas. Uh, we are having to educate people there about tithing because even people in the church had been told, just come to our church and we will take you to the feast because that increases numbers. So people were willing to come and be taken to the feast. But we've had to tell them that that's not the way it's to function, that we're to save some tithe money to go to the feast. And that was new to them. They weren't being told those things. So again, it was a very interesting trip. Every time I come back, though, I'm sobered. We had lunch on two or three days with people uh, in their homes. And I know as a pastor here in the U.S. for 15 or 20 years, I've encountered people periodically. You know, God doesn't love me. Things are just not going good for me, you know, and I have all these difficulties and I'll just go out and sit down on my overstuffed couch and watch television for a while, and I get thirsty, I go to the refrigerator and get something to drink. You know, these people have no electricity. They have no running water. They have no stove, no refrigerator, no sink. Uh, this is how they function in the rural areas down there. We had lunch in a little place that was built out of bricks that they had made for themselves. Uh, the living room, dining room, 
whatever you call it, it was about eight by ten. They'd made some of their furniture and got some plastic chairs from somewhere. Uh, the kitchen was a little six by six or five by five, little brick structure out away from the house. And they were cooking over uh, wood, just a wood fire. Uh, the cupboards were a little wood rack where you just stack stuff up to keep it out of the ways of the dogs and the cats. But uh, this is how most of the people in the rural areas live. And for us, they killed a chicken, cooked some rice and beans, uh, and it was a sacrifice for them. And yet they're understanding the same thing that you and I have been called to understand. And they're excited about their calling. But they don't have near what we have over here. We drove about 400 miles each way, 400 kilometers each way, over roads that had ruts two or three inches deep in some places. In other places, you negotiate to miss the potholes. It might be four or five or six inches deep. If you go off the pavement, there is no paved shoulder. You might drop four to six to ten inches off the pavement. It's just sobering. It's, it's sobering to be there, and it's, it's quite an experience coming back. It'll probably take a week or two just to make an adjustment. But we had over 100 people in central and western Kenya. And I think if we were able to do, we we're hoping to do some more advertising down there. There's opportunities for us. And if we do, we're going to need a full-time minister there probably because the man who is our office manager... Very nice man, very nice family, Mr. Mathama. Uh, he also has a job, uh, and he would certainly appreciate some help. But uh, it's, it's, quite, it's exciting to go. It's exciting to talk with people to see the truth of God being understood, and yet it's also very sobering to be there and then to come back and to see how blessed we are here. You know, when you came into the church, when I came into the church, however long ago it was, maybe a couple of years ago, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20, or 30, or 40 years ago, you were probably shocked and surprised to realize that Sunday was not God's Sabbath. And you learned that it had been changed in the early centuries of the church under Constantine. The Sabbath was shifted to Sunday. It was also surprising to learn that Christmas and Easter came from pagan religions and were grafted into the church to draw pagans into the church and make their transition to, quote, unquote, Christianity easier. These things were shocking to us, surprising to us. But most of us dug into the Bible and found out that it really was true, as we heard in the announcements. People are learning that the old covenant uh, in fact, the Old Testament has not been done away with, but it has application today. We were surprised to learn that we didn't go to heaven. We were going to stay here on this earth to reign with Jesus Christ. These things were all sobering to us. About 10 years ago, a group of people got their fingers on the left power in the church of God and began changing things shifting back from Sabbath to Sunday. A friend of mine I've known for over 40 years is pastoring a church, the Worldwide Church of God. And uh, they are shifting their uh, worship service to Sunday. 
And he was asked by somebody, well, you're doing away with the Sabbath. He, oh, no, 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 we're not. In fact, I don't like that insinuation. We're merely combining our Sabbath congregation and our Sunday congregation, and we're going to meet on Sunday. You know, this is so much double talk. It's coming from a person, I think, that really should know better. But things have been changed. The Sabbath was shifted back to Sunday, at least the worship service. And people are told that, you know, the holy days have been done away with. We don't need those anymore. We can keep Christmas and we can keep Easter as long as our heart is right. Another major doctrine, teaching of the church of God, in fact, one of the earliest ones that was discarded, was the importance and the understanding of the biblical identity of nations. People were told it's not essential for salvation to know these things. It's not essential for salvation to believe these things. In fact, the holy days don't have a plan at all. A lot of people were told these things. You know, as I look back over the last 10 years, and especially from 15 years, and especially after living in Europe and being able to dig into some things over there, I am shocked and amazed at the, what I would call the limited, selective, and poor scholarship of those who have rejected these teachings, especially the identity of nations. Some of these people supposedly have some theological training, but they don't understand the Bible. And the material that is available on the subject is quite exhaustive. I mean, you find all kinds of things. And yet the simplistic arguments that were put forward for throwing out the doctrine of the identity of various nations, it has been quite a surprise. The other surprise has been the ease with which people have bought these very simplistic ideas. People who should know better. Well, they told us that it's not essential for our salvation. Well, who are they? You know, a sermon was given in Big Sandy a number of years ago that the dietary laws are no longer binding. And people went out that night and had shrimp and lobster for dinner. That evening, without proving, without examining, it's just buying the idea. People have been told the identity of nations is not important. It's not essential to your salvation. And people have bought that idea based on very poor scholarship, based on very limited understanding, the articles that were written that debunked the idea. What I'd like to do in the sermon today is address the subject of national identities and the plan of God. National identities and the plan of God. And I want to show that it is essential to our salvation to understand these things. It's essential to fulfilling our mission as a church to understand these concepts. 
And far from being based on fables and myths, there's an incredible amount of information for those that are interested in finding that information. And I think we will see that those who have ridiculed and rejected this concept of national identities are basically guilty of spreading lies and misunderstandings and misleading people in a major way. As we talk in the sermon today, I'd like you to keep a couple of things in mind because we're going to be talking about prophecies. Some people have said today, prophecy is not important. You know, we don't want to be guilty of prediction addiction. So we won't pay too much attention to prophecy. And yet Paul mentions in his letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, he says, don't despise prophecy. Don't take prophecy lightly. And yet if you look at the major mainstream religions, Catholic, Protestant, whatever, they don't talk much about prophecy. The reason they don't talk about prophecy is they don't understand prophecy. So they don't talk about it. And yet Paul told the Thessalonians, don't despise prophecy. Don't take it lightly. Don't treat it lightly. Also in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul said, prove all things. Examine what you believe. Look into it. Verify it. Check up on it. Mr. Armstrong used to say, periodically, Dr. Meredith says the same thing. Don't believe me. Believe your Bible. Believe what you can prove. Believe what you can get your teeth into. I think, frankly, some of the people that may have left and bought into these ideas that it's not essential to our salvation, it's not that important, may have never taken the time to actually examine the subject or look into it on their own. I remember a number of years ago, I was talking with a young fellow, who was a minister. I said, what do you think of the questionnaire they sent out to us about the identity of American Britain and prophecies. I've never really thought much about it. It's never been important to me. He's no longer a minister. In fact, he's writing things on the Internet about what he doesn't believe. And I said, I talked to him one time. I said, why are you writing these things? He says, it's therapy for me. It's therapy for me. But the subject of national identities, biblical identities, wasn't important to him. Let's look into the Bible and find out what the Bible has to say about a number of these things. First point I want to make this afternoon is that God has a plan and purpose that he is working out on this earth. Winston Churchill understood that. I think he made a statement before the American Congress. He said that, there is a God in heaven who's working out a plan and a purpose on this earth. And we, the Americans and the British, he was saying, have the fortunate, uh, or whatever it was, we have the, uh, uh, the unfortunate or fortunate honor of being instruments in his hand. Churchill understood there was a plan and purpose being worked out. Yet I was talking with an individual one time and he says, the holy days do not picture a plan. 
There is no plan. Jesus is the plan. Now, he said these things publicly, wrote about these things. Is that true? Is that true? You know, I challenge you, get concordance, look up the word purpose and see if it's used in the Bible. It is used in the Bible. God has a plan and a purpose. Mr. Armstrong used to say all the time, the holy days picture a plan and a purpose that Jesus Christ is working, or that God is working out on this earth. So notice the scriptures quickly in Psalm 33. Ask the question, does God have a plan and purpose? Does the Bible talk about a plan and purpose? Is the statement true that there is no plan or no purpose? You know, Paul's admonition to the Thessalonians is applicable to us today. You know, if we don't take the time to look up some of these things, examine some of these things, and prove to ourselves some of these ideas, then we'll probably let them go quite easily, and we may buy into the wrong thing. Psalm 33, beginning in verse 10, 11, and 12. Says the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart uh, to all generations. In other words, they stand to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen as his own. Go back up to verse 11. It says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The Hebrew word here is Esa, E-S-A. It means a plan, a purpose, a scheme, counsel. In other words, the plan of the Lord stands forever. The purpose of God stands forever. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen for an inheritance. He has a chosen people. Physically, they were the nation of Israel. Spiritually, it involves us today. Now, some people will say, well, that's exclusivist. <laughs> we don't want to be exclusive. You don't want to be God's chosen people? You want to tell God that? I'm not interested. I don't care to be your chosen people. You can if you want. I don't mind being God's chosen people. But with that choosing comes a responsibility. We're going to be held responsible for what God wants his chosen people to do. But Psalm 33 tells us, very plainly, God does have a plan and purpose. Notice in Isaiah 46. Now we've used this in the context of prophecy, but let's notice uh, some other aspects about this verse, or these verses. Isaiah 46. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 8, remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, you, you transgressors, remember the former things of old. Verse 9, for I am God, there is none other, and there is none other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, declaring the outcome before it even happens. 
and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, predicting the future, saying, My counsel shall stand. Same word, ESA, E-S-A. My plan and purpose will stand. My plan and purpose will happen. It will be brought about. I will do my pleasure. I will do as I have planned. God has a plan. He has a purpose. And when someone says there is no plan, there is no purpose, they simply don't know what they're talking about. They are not speaking according to the Word of God. You know, the holy days do picture a plan and purpose. You just write down the, the holy day and then write down the meaning of it. And look at the scriptures that back it up. You don't need to turn there, but in John 12, verse 27, Jesus said, For this purpose did I come to die, to give my life as a sacrifice. That's what the Passover is all about. That's what the slaying of the lamb on Passover was all about. It pictured a plan and a purpose. Days of unleavened bread, picture the putting out of sin. We've got to repent. We've got to change. Pentecost pictures the starting of the New Testament church, the outpouring of God's Spirit. We can't do it on our own. We need God's Spirit. The holy days do picture a plan and purpose. Now, if someone can't see that, they're blind, spiritually speaking. Their mind apparently has not been open to understand that plan and purpose. Notice in Ephesians, Paul understood there was a plan and a purpose. Ephesians chapter 1. You know, it's just unfortunate that more people didn't ask more questions. You know, who are you? Why should I believe you? You know, are you speaking according to the word of God? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, <clears throat> start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us. So here's Paul speaking to the church, saying, We have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. God had a plan from the very beginning to call a small group of people called First Fruits and train them, prepare them for the coming of Jesus Christ to rule with Jesus Christ. We have been, uh, just as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before Him in love, having predestined or predetermined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ, to Him according to His own to the good pleasure of his will. Up in verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will. And many people go through life wondering, well, I just wonder what God's will is for my life. It's all in the book. It's all there. We've been created in the image of God to become his sons, his daughters, to become members of his family, to reign with Jesus Christ on this earth. That's our purpose. That is God's will for us. He wants us to be servants. He wants us to develop the character of God, to develop compassion and concern. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. 
God has a plan and a purpose. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Down in verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has a plan. He has a purpose. The Bible makes that extremely plain and clear. Jesus is part of that purpose. The coming of Jesus Christ, his giving of his life as a sacrifice, the starting of the church is part of that purpose, but it is not the complete purpose. It's not the total purpose. Notice in Isaiah chapter 23, looking at some prophecies. And we could look at a number of different prophecies that affect the future and outline the future of various nations on this earth. Isaiah 23 is a prophecy against Tyre. Now, there was an ancient Tyre that fulfilled some of these prophecies. There's a prince of Tyre talked about in the Bible that will fulfill future aspects of these prophecies. In Isaiah 23, notice in verse... Uh, Verse 9, it's talking about the, uh, actually we have to start a little bit earlier there. Uh, it's talking about Tyre. Uh, it says, who has taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city, whose merchants are princes and whose traders are honorable on the earth? In other words, who's made these predictions? The Lord of hosts has proposed it to bring dishonor to bring to dishonor the pride of all glory and to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. In other words, God is going to bring down people who make their own plans and purposes, not according to his. But in verse 9 it says, The Lord of hosts has proposed it, has purposed it, has determined to do it, and he will. Revelation 17, 17, a New Testament aspect of the same thing, showing that God has a plan, God has a purpose. Revelation 17, 17 is talking about the beast turning on the false prophet, the political aspect of what's happening in Europe, turning on the religious aspect. It says, for God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose. God is going to punish those in Europe that are developing their own system over there and an individual that gains uh, uh, control of the political levers in Europe and declares himself basically a god to be worshipped. God is going to turn the, uh, these two individuals, the beast and the false prophet, against each other. But what it says here is to fulfill his purpose. God is going to bring these things to pass. My major point here at the very beginning is that God does have a plan and purpose. And it's going to work out. You know, Daniel says these prophecies are sure. And they will come to pass. One of the reasons that prophets could make prophecies was because God has a plan and a purpose. They wouldn't be able to make prophecies if there was no overall plan and purpose. But God does have an overall plan and purpose. And when someone says there is no plan, Jesus is the plan. 
They simply don't know what they're talking about. They're not speaking from the Scriptures. They're speaking from their own heart. Second point. I want to look at national identities for a minute and show how important these things are. First, relative to our mission. Understanding national identities are important to our mission as a church. We need to understand these things. Now, we talk about the Great Commission. We read about it in Mark chapter 16, verse 15. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We understand this is part of the Great Commission. Many other churches understand the same thing. We are to preach the gospel to the world as a witness. Another scripture that is used to describe the Great Commission is Matthew 28. But let's go to Matthew 28 and notice what it says and what it doesn't say. Matthew 28. Verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. Notice it doesn't say here to go and preach the gospel. It says, Teach what I have commanded you to teach. Of course, preaching the gospel was part of what he commanded them to preach teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Now, what did he command them to do? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 10. And this is where it becomes interesting. Matthew chapter 10, he calls the disciples together and gives them a commission. Down in verse 5, it says, The twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, nor enter into the city of the Samaritans. They weren't to go there first. They were to do something else first, and then eventually go to the Gentiles and the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is a command by Jesus Christ to his disciples. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So they were to preach the gospel. But it says, you are to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Down in verse 23. It's talking about you're going to be persecuted. It's going to be difficult. But when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly I say unto you, you will have not gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man come. You will not have completed your mission to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel before I come. Mr. Armstrong did not finish the work. There is work yet to be done. But he said, you're not going to go through all of the house of Israel and cities of Israel before I come. Brethren, if we are going to complete the mission that Jesus gave his disciples to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, we have to know who they are and where they are. 
if you're part of the church. This is part of your mission. doesn't matter what your background is, racially, ethnically, whatever. This is as a church. Because the Israelites made an agreement with God. They said, whatever you have asked us to do, we will do. God blessed them as a result. They haven't done it. They're going to be punished. They need to know why that punishment is coming. But there are also prophecies about the future of other nations that are going to be punished. And they need to be warned also. And this is what we've been called to do. The disciples knew where the Israelites had gone. And they went there. The Israelites were not lost in the first century. They have been lost to modern scholars today. Partly because modern scholars think that all the Israelites are Jews. And we have gone through a period of history where nobody wanted to be associated with anything Jewish. So a number of things have been lost down through the ages. But the point I want to make here, point number two, is understanding the national identity of various nations is important to fulfilling our mission. Jesus commanded his disciples, you go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and you carry a message to them. You've got to preach to them about the coming kingdom of God, but there's also a warning that you have to give. So point number two is understanding our na and understanding national identities is essential to fulfilling our mission of preaching the gospel. Point number three, understanding national identities is important to fulfilling our mission about providing a warning both to the Israelite nations and to the world. You know, I think we probably need to to look carefully at the Great Commission. You know, in the past, we've said that it's, it's a twofold commission. Preach the gospel and feed the flock. Why do we have Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, where it says, watch? Do we watch for our amusement? Or do we watch as watchmen and provide a warning? Now, we have a mission to warn the world and to warn the nations of Israel. You go back to Ezekiel chapter 3. And in some organizations today, you don't hear these scriptures read. It's not important. It's Old Testament, Old Covenant. And yet Ezekiel was given his message to go to the house of Israel. And the Israelites had gone into captivity a hundred years before. And he's talking about, you know, you're going to go into captivity. Kind of late, isn't it? unless there is a greater fulfillment down the road in modern times. Now, you've got to prove this to yourself before it makes any sense. Ezekiel was given a warning, and he was among the captives of Babylon. They were carried captive around 600. The Israelite nations, the northern ten tribes, were carried captive around 720 B.C., 120 years earlier. Then Ezekiel gets this message, tell the Israelite nations they're going to go into captivity. It's got to be a future fulfillment for it. I mean, if your brain works it, you're logically thinking. 
Notice his mission. Verse 3 of chapter 2. I am sending you to the children of Israel. The children of Israel were not Jews. There were 12 tribes of Israelites. An impudent, stubborn people, rebellious people. Down in chapter 3, verse 1. Eat this scroll. Go speak to the house of Israel. There's got to be a modern fulfillment of this. Someone's got to do this. They've got to know who these people are and where these people are. Verse 4, he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. Verse 17, Son of man, I've made you a watchman to the house of Israel. We don't watch just for our own entertainment. We're to notice certain things. I picked up a Times and a Telegraph in London yesterday. Big front page news was these cartoons that had been published in the Danish newspaper making fun of the Prophet of Muhammad. And the whole Islamic world is beginning to bubble and boil. The whole Islamic world is beginning to bubble. You can't do that. You can't say that. You know, we're going to cut your heads off. This was front page news over there. It was on the front page here this morning too. They said, we're going to boycott Danish goods. And the Europeans are saying a boycott of Danish goods is going to be viewed as a boycott of European goods. You are challenging freedom of the press. You can't tell us how to run our press. What do we have boiling here? A north and a south situation. King of the north, king of the south, going to push against each other. This is happening today. Yeah, but this is Super Bowl Sunday. We don't have time to worry about it. Come on, we've got to get real. All these distractions, and yet things are happening right before our eyes. The whole of Europe is bubbling over there on this. The whole Islamic world is beginning to bubble over these things. Daniel 11 is coming to pass in front of our eyes. We'll have to see where this leads. But we need to explain to the world what these things mean. Ezekiel was commissioned to be a watchman for the house of Israel. You know, in the Middle Ages, watchmen got up on the ramparts of a city and they walked around and they watched. And then it sounded an alarm, you know, it's 10 o'clock and all is well. Until they see somebody coming over the horizon. Wake up, wake up, wake up. Things are coming. But this was Ezekiel's commission. He was to go and be a watchman to the house of Israel, but they had been carried into captivity 120 years before. There's got to be a future fulfillment of that. That shouldn't be that difficult to understand. In Ezekiel 33... You know, the, another aspect is given in chapter 33 that's not mentioned in chapters 2 and 3. Ezekiel 33, and I'm just going to paraphrase this. <clears throat> Ezekiel was told, if you see something coming as a watchman, you see the sword coming, and if you blow the trumpet and you warn people, then they will escape and you will escape. But if you see things coming, you see the sword coming, and you don't blow a trumpet, you don't warn, and people die, 
is their blood is going to be on your shoulders. Is this concept of national identities essential to our salvation? If we don't know who to warn, and we're not sure what to say, I think we're going to be held responsible. We should know where these people are. And we should know who Bible prophecy is talking about. It's not big secrets. It is possible to know and possible to understand. You know, I asked a fellow some time ago, a leader in one of the organizations, what are you guys going to do with the U.S. and Britain material and prophecy? He says, we're not sure what to do with it. So they're not saying much about it. They're not sure who Germany is. So they're not going to say much about that. Some people are not sure who the beast is. They're not sure where he's going to arise. This is what has happened over 10 or 15 years. You know, we need to wake up. We need to be understanding how important some of these things are. I think it's fairly plain with what God says to Ezekiel. If you don't deliver a warning, the blood of the people that die is going to be on your shoulders. Point number three, understanding national identities is essential to our salvation. Let's look at some scriptures quickly. You can read through Ezekiel 33 and see if you can come to the conclusion that not delivering the warning is not going to be that important. I don't think you can come to that conclusion reading honestly Ezekiel 33. But notice in Matthew chapter 7, this is New Testament. Matthew chapter 7, <clears throat> beginning in verse 21. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Those who do what they've been asked to do, those who do what they have been commanded to do. And Christ said, I want you to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I want you to warn them about what is coming. Many will say to me in that day, well, Lord, Lord, we, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons and have social projects and help out communities and do all these wonderful things? And then I will declare unto you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, those of you who didn't do what I asked you to do. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm not going to have any part of you. We go back to Jeremiah chapter 23. It talks as a warning here to false prophets to avoid them and to understand how they function. Now, we've understood for years, Jeremiah 23 talks about false prophets. Verse 1, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter my pasture. Now, does it matter that God's people are all broken up and all scattered in hundreds of different organizations today? God says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter my sheep that start their own internet sites and start their own little churches and do their own little things. It says, woe to them who scatter and destroy the sheep of my pasture. 
Down in verse 16, it says, the Lord of hosts says, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart. Yeah, national identities are not important. Prophecy is not important. You know, you don't want to be guilty of prediction addiction. I asked one guy that fired me. I, <laughs> I said, you know, if you would give us solid material, we would promote it. I said, you guys are promoting your own ideas. He said, you're right. <laughs> you're right. Their own ideas. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And to everyone who walks according to their own imagination of their own heart, no evil will come to you. you know, if you feel good in your heart that you can keep Christmas, then that's fine. Read it for yourself. What's it talking about here? Notice also the last part of verse 20. In the latter days, you will understand this perfectly. At the end of the age, this is all going to begin to make sense. Are we approaching the end of the age? This scripture that Jeremiah wrote was for the end of the age. He says it's going to make sense as we approach the end of the age. Verse 21, I've not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I've not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. Verse 25, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name. You know, I don't think we cannot conclude that understanding national identities is essential to our salvation. It is. We need to understand where these people are, where they went, how to reach them. Point number four, let's talk about national identities and the plan of God. Let's understand how important this subject is. I want to look at three identities maybe indicate A, B, and C. But let's look at three identities that are going to be extremely important as we approach the end of the age. The first has to do with the identity of Israel, the Israelite nations. And many Protestant organizations today believe that uh, Israel is, is Israel in the Middle East, that the Israelites are Jews, and that's all. I think Pat Robertson believes that, a number of these other people. They believe that the Abrahamic covenant was made with the Jews, starting in Genesis 12. Jews didn't exist when God made that covenant with Abraham. They didn't exist until Judah was born, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Then the Jews came into existence. The covenant was made with Abraham, and then with Isaac, and then with Jacob, and it applies to all 12 sons. You know, understanding these things is important. You know, the identity of Israel is, as Mr. Armstrong said years ago, a key to understanding Bible prophecy. Yet the fellow told me, we're not sure what to do with that information. 
Well, it's a key to understanding Bible prophecy. If you don't understand who the Israelites are, who the Assyrians are, who the beast is, you're not going to understand Bible prophecy. As a result, you'll probably not say much about it. Or if you do, it'll be very vague. Mr. Armstrong said it was a key to understanding Bible prophecy. I was talking with Mr. Pyle just before services. The booklet that United States and British and Britain and prophecy was the most requested booklet the Worldwide Church of God ever produced. Not important? Sending out millions of copies? Not important? Why is it important? Jesus told his disciples, I want you to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You can't go there unless you know where they are. You can't deliver a message unless you know who to deliver it to. The apostles knew. And they went there. Notice James chapter 1. <clears throat> you know, as a Protestant growing up, as a young person, I read over some of these scriptures and it didn't make much sense to me. It was just kind of there. But in James chapter 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. That's who James wrote to. Now, did he just spam this thing? <laughs> you know, type out this message, press a button, and wherever you are. No, he knew where they were. He knew where they were. Josephus mentions. Josephus wrote in the first century. He was writing to the Romans. And he mentions the 12 tribes are beyond the Euphrates and have become a great numerous people. Josephus knew where they were. They were beyond the Euphrates. They were over in what is now modern day Iraq and Iran. That's where they were at that time. Several of the apostles went there. Paul, Peter, and a number of others went to Britain. Why did they go there? Sightseeing. <laughs> Weekend in London. <laughs> Take a boat ride down the Thames. No, why did, why did you wind up with probably six, seven, eight of either the apostles or some of the early church over there? There was a Catholic uh, fellow I did a study on where the apostles went back in the 1500s and I've read through his, uh, some of his stuff. And he lists seven or eight individuals that were in England in the first century, including Paul, possibly Peter, possibly James. Uh, <clears throat> Why did they go there? Unless there were Israelite peoples there. In the Bible, in the book of Acts, mentions, Paul mentions, he says, I'm going to stop and see you on my way to Spain. Why was he going to Spain? Because that's where the trade routes went. There was a lot of mining for metals in Spain that the Celts were into. They were metal workers. And they were digging for gold and silver in southern Spain. They had a big base in Cadiz. And from there they went up the coast of Portugal. In northwestern Spain there was a lot of tin. Tin was important to mix with copper to make bronze. 
and they went from there up into England, up into Wales, southern coast of Ireland. A lot of ships going back and forth at that time. I remember talking with a, a deacon, I think he was, in one of the Anglican churches in London. I said, you know, I've heard that the Apostle Paul was here in England. He said, no way, couldn't be, too far, not enough time. <laughs> Baloney. There were ships going back and forth all the time. They were shipping limestone blocks from the southern coast of England back to Rome. They've made model cranes over there right now off of Portland Bill. It's a little projected peninsula. It's where Portland cement probably started. But uh, those ships were going back and forth at that time. Uh, Paul said he's going to Spain and very possibly was then up into England. Wouldn't have been that far. But understanding these national identities are important if we're going to fulfill our mission, provide a warning and preach the gospel to these people. Many people were told about 10 years ago that uh, this is a fascinating concept, but it's not essential to your salvation. In fact, it's based on myths and legends, and it's just not really uh, anything we want to get into. What was not being said was, this is not accepted by mainstream Christianity, and we want to become part of the mainstream, so therefore... We are rejecting the idea. This was not said. But this is why these things happened. There was also comments about the whole idea of Britain being an Israelite nation comes from a crazy guy that lived in the 1500s that was actually jailed as being insane because he said he was the king of Israel and he wanted the king of England to turn the crown over to him. But that is not where the idea originated. If you look at Irish history, and this is what blows my mind, because all this stuff is there. And to say that the idea that England, Britain, being Israel, originated with a crazy man is, is crazy. <laughs> Irish history talks about some of the first people into Ireland were of the Tuatha de Danann the tribe of Dan. They came there probably 1500 B.C. And some people, well, you know, we don't know and we're not sure. Cyrus Gordon has been labeled as one of the most prominent American archaeologists in the 1900s. He believed that the Tuatha de Danann was the tribe of Dan. He said one of the names for Cyprus was uh, Ildana, the island of Dan. Other early authorities mentioned that uh, some of the Greeks came from uh, the Nile region, and they were called Dana peoples. I mean, this stuff is all there. It's not invented. It's there. You can dig these things out. <clears throat> The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which was written about eight or 900 A.D., said the earliest peoples into Britain came from Armenia, the area between the Black and Caspian Seas, was where the Israelites had been carried captives. But this is the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, written eight or 900 A.D., said that the earliest peoples into Britain came from Armenia. 
came from the very area where the Israelites were carried captive. The Declaration of Our Broth, the Scottish Declaration of Independence, written about 1300. This was written as a protest to the Pope against the incursions of Edward I or some people from England. And the Scots said, we came from Scythia, the same area around the Black and Caspian Sea. They said, according to the ancient chronicles, the Scots came from Scythia, this area between the Black and Caspian Seas. And we saw a copy of the Declaration of Our Broth in Our Broth a couple years ago. So this is 1300, several hundred years before this crazy guy supposedly originated the concept. One of the earliest British writers that we have record of, a man by the name of Gildas, wrote around 500 A.D. He talks about it. He was talking about why the Angles and Saxons and Danes are coming into Britain. Why are we being punished? The title of his book was something like The Ruin of Britain. And he says, God is punishing these Israelites. He's punishing us Britons, these Israelites. 500 A.D., 1,000 years before this crazy guy lived. <laughs> I mean, this is there. This is the evidence that's there. Uh, the Tuatha de Danann, apparently of the tribe of Dan. How did they get up to Britain? Why were they there? Let's go back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 4. Just notice a couple of things. <clears throat> Again, these are things we may have read over, but if we understand what we're being told, <clears throat> First Kings, <clears throat> actually chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon because he had heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram had always loved David. King of Tyre was a Phoenician. The Phoenicians were the navigators of the ancient world. They were trading in metals and other things. Carthage was a colony of Tyre. And then the Carthaginians established Cadiz in Spain. They were the ones who were getting up into Ireland, up into Wales, where some of you were for the feast, where the biggest copper mine in the ancient world was. David had a relationship with the king of Tyre, the Phoenicians, the navigators of the ancient world. Go to 1 Kings chapter 9, I think it is. No, 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. There was... Not one was of silver, for this was accounted nothing in the days of Solomon. It was very rich, dealing in metals. For the king and the merchant ships, for the king had merchant ships at sea with the fleet of Hiram. In other words, Israelites were sailing with the fleet of the Phoenicians. Once every three years, the merchant ships came back bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. So the apes and monkeys probably came from Africa. The gold and the silver may have come from other places. 
Why did it take three years for a voyage? Magellan sailed around the world in a little over two and a half years. There's some speculation that uh, some of Solomon's ships may have come to the New World. But a voyage of three years gives you time to do things. And that's not as crazy as it sounds. Uh, one of the Egyptian pharaohs about 600 B.C. commissioned a Phoenician navigator to circumnavigate Africa. 600 B.C. The Phoenicians were the navigators of the ancient world. The idea that you fell off the edge of the earth if you sailed through the Straits of Gibraltar was fostered by the Phoenicians because they wanted to monopolize the metal trade. <laughs> Up to England and Ireland. And they were told that if uh, somebody followed them, they could sink their ship, wreck their ship, and that ship would be restored. The government backed them in this. And it appears that the Danites sailed with the Phoenicians. Because the northern part of the tribe of Dan is just inland from uh, the city of Tyre. The Bible talks about that Dan lived in ships or dwelt in ships. You know, so these things are not as, as off the wall as some people would like you to believe. There's all kinds of evidence that points in that direction. The Behistun Rock is rock carvings on a mountainside up in the northern part of Iraq, up into this Iran area in the Caucasus Mountains. It's a carving in three languages. Darius lived about 600 B.C. He talks about the Qumri and the Saki. These were Israelite peoples. Today you go to Wales, you buy a little postcard with a red dragon on it. It says Qumri on the bottom. How do you get Qumri in Wales? And then you find these same inscriptions in Armenia. There were migrations by a number of different routes, up around the Black Sea, up the Danube. <clears throat> in some cases they were looking for metals. In some cases they were getting away from other people. There were other migratory routes through the Mediterranean. Through, up through the, the, around the uh, Straits of Gibraltar, up the west coast of Spain and Portugal, then up into uh, Britain and up into Ireland. But you find these things that all point in the same direction. The idea that Britain is part of the Israelite tribes can be documented, can be verified. There's plenty of evidence pointing in that direction. Why is this important? You know, even the, the Bible tells us some of these things. Genesis 48 and 49. Genesis 48 talks about the descendants of Jacob. Joseph actually would become a nation and a company of nations. They would dwell in the choice places of the earth, would become a colonizing people. Who are these people? You know, where are they today? You know, if America and Britain are not this nation and company of nations, you know, who else is? These things are there. But what's interesting is Genesis 49, verse 1. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the latter days. 
in the latter days. At the end of the age, we should be able to look back on the histories of peoples and begin to identify some of these peoples based on these descriptions. This is what the prophecy was for at the end of the age. So that people would be able to understand. You can read there in verse 8 about the Jews and how they would be the scepter would not depart nor the lawgiver until Shiloh, till the Messiah comes. And people identify that with the Jews. But you can begin to identify these other things. It talks about Dan. He's going to be a serpent by the way. He's going to leave his name in various places. When you read critical articles about what we've written, you say, you know, Mr. Armstrong played word games. Played word games about this Dan. You know, Danube and Denister and Denmark and, and so on. Played word games. Not playing word games. The tribe of Dan did take over places and they named the place Dan. They did that. You know, we lived in New England for about 10 years. Places like Weymouth, Bridgewater, Bristol, Braintree. Where does things come from? Southwestern England. There's a Bristol. There's a Bridgewater. Weymouth, Exeter. And these are all in New England. And one of the early names for London was New Troy. When they say that London was established by people that got out of Troy when it fell. People take their names with them. These are not word games. If you study uh, some of these subjects, you begin to realize this is how you do trace people back where they came from. So the identity of Israel is extremely important. The Bible tells us at the end of the age, you'll be able to know these things. Why do you need to know these things? Because they need to be given a warning. They need to be given a witness. The identity of the beast power, quickly. We were told a number of years ago, the gospel is not about a beast power rising in Europe. Mr. Armstrong got that wrong. The gospel was never about a beast power rising in Europe. That's a warning. The gospel is about the coming kingdom of God. The warning message is about a beast power rising in Europe. Because when it does, we're getting close to the end of the age. And that's what people need to understand. You know, that beast is talked about as being made up of a mixture of iron and clay. It's going to be very unstable. And that's exactly what you have in Europe today. It's a very unstable mixture. You know, the French and Germans are trying to dominate it. And little nations like Holland and Belgium are saying, you can't do that to us. We don't like that. They cut deals with each other. It's not a stable situation. And it's not going to last. You probably break up and we get ten nations coming out of it. Some people have said, you know, uh, the beast is not Europe, it's, it's America. Well, Daniel talks about there's going to be ten resurrections of this beast related to the Roman Empire. Where have nine of those resurrections taken place? Not in Salt Lake City. <laughs> Not in New York. Not in Dallas, Texas. They've taken place in Europe. 
And what's coming together now? It's coming together in Europe. And we need to understand these things. We shouldn't be apologetic for any of these things. You know, Mr. Armstrong went on record in the late 40s, said Europe is going to come together and Germany is going to lead it. How did he know Germany? Because it talks about Assyria is going to be a, a, God, a rod, of, rod of anger in God's hands. And God is going to use that nation to punish a backsliding nation. But some people today are not sure who Assyria is. That's my third point, the identity of Assyria. Who do we know? Who is it? How do we know? Isaiah 10, verse 5 through 19, it talks about God will use this nation of Assyria as a rod of anger to punish a backsliding nation. They talk about, aren't our princes all, or aren't our people all princes? And the have had this master race concept. It talks about they're very proud and God is going to have to humble them. They're going to need to understand who they are. You know, I was told a couple years ago, we can't talk about that because you might embarrass the Germans. I think that would be pretty hard. <laughs> because I am one, <laughs> at least partly. But Mr. Armstrong went on record and said, Germany will lead Europe based on these scriptures and other scriptures. The Arabs understood that the Germans were the Assyrians, or at least they called them Assyrians, in the 1400s. The oldest city in Germany is Trier. And the legends say it was founded by an Assyrian prince. Why would they choose Assyrian princes to found their, their, their oldest city? Again, the evidence is there for people that are willing to look. The Assyrians were into metals, into iron. They were one of the first nations to use iron weapons. The Hittites were their allies. They were also into iron. One of the reasons they were up into Central Europe was looking for iron, looking for sources of metals. They came up to Danube. This really came home to me a couple years ago when I was in uh, Brussels. And it was a whole wall, probably bigger than that stone fireplace over there, with a big map of Europe. And it showed the Danube, big as could be, winding up through the heart of Europe. And you began to realize that was the superhighway. That was the mode of travel at that time, was to go up the Danube, up into Central Europe. And the headwaters of the Danube are not too far from the headwaters of the Rhine. So you can go up the Danube, down the Rhine, and you're up into the uh, area of Britain. And these were trade routes at that time. Notice in Isaiah chapter 14. Why do we need to understand these things? <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 14. Here we have prophecies about the future of... Babylon, we're dealing with this area of the world. Verse 24. It says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely I have thought, so, I shall, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purposed, 
so it shall stand. I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains tread him underfoot. Then his yoke shall be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the purpose that I have proposed against the whole earth. God is going to break the power of Assyria. These people need to know what their future is going to be. Somebody's got to tell them. But there's also a positive message in Isaiah 19. And this is part of the good news that some of these people need to hear. Isaiah chapter 19, verses 23 through 25. In that day when Christ returns, will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Now, these people need to understand what their future is. The EU is not the hope of mankind. The return of Jesus Christ is the hope of mankind. We have a mission to warn the world about what is coming, to explain to the nations of the world what is about to happen. You and I have been called to be part of that mission. Go back quickly and we will conclude to First uh, Peter chapter 1. I want to read a couple of different verses that we don't always read when we go to 1 Peter. Or 2 Peter, excuse me. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. We've been told that the identity of nations is not important, it's not essential to our salvation, it's based on a lot of myths and legends and so on. Peter says here, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. The opportunity to live and travel around in Europe and England, Ireland, a number of different places over there, was a chance really to dig into some of the information that is there. It would be on the spot in some of these places and to see the linkages that are there. When Mr. Hernandez and I were down in Spain and Portugal last summer, there's Celtic peoples down there. The whole northwestern chunk of that peninsula, up in northwestern Spain and the northern parts of Portugal, these are Celtic peoples. They played bagpipes down there. (laughs) The reason the Celts were there, the biggest gold mine in the ancient world was up in that area. Uh, Tin mines were up in that area. It was extremely important, especially around 1500 B.C. That's why they were there. There was a trade back and forth. The Phoenicians were involved. And as we read in 1 Kings, the Israelites were involved with the Phoenicians in those trade routes. The information is there that anybody wants to look for it. Peter says, we did not follow cunningly devised fables. We were eyewitnesses to these things. He says, later, we also have a more sure word of prophecy. Why has the church of God had a more sure word of God? Because we understand identities of nations. And it gives us a key to understanding 
Bible prophecy, which is going to be essential to warning this world as we approach the end of the age. Now, this is why Paul said to the Thessalonians, which we read in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, prove all things. Look into these things carefully so that you know what you believe. If somebody comes along and says, oh, it's not essential to your salvation, you don't need to worry about that. You know, all kind of bells and whistles should go off. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says something very different. The Bible says that we have been commissioned by Jesus Christ to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Notice also Peter mentions down here, I may not be able to find it uh, Right now, but Peter mentions that it's not God's will that any should punish or should perish. You know, we've got a, a message to give to the world. It involves East Africa, involves the Pacific, involves Europe. I was talking with Mr. Storier before I came home. He said they're getting responses to the television program that's going out of England from Germany and other places in Europe. You know, we have answers. We can explain why things are moving in the direction that they are moving. It's not prophecy addiction. It's merely following and understanding the prophecies that God has given in the Bible. Brethren, God has a plan and a purpose. Understanding that plan and purpose is extremely important. And to understand it, we need to understand the identity of various nations, who they are, where they are. The early apostles did. God has given us that understanding today, and we need to use that understanding. We need to use that understanding in order to fulfill the mission that God has given us.